The scripture reading today is from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, John was standing again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus walking along, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he asked, What are you looking for? They said, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? He replied, Come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two disciples heard what John said and followed Jesus. One of the two disciples who heard what John said and followed Jesus was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. He led him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus went to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. Jesus said to him, Follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets, Jesus, Joseph's son from Nazareth. Nathanael responded, Can anything from Nazareth be good? Philip said, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here is a genuine Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are God's son. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. I assure you that you will see heaven open up and God's angels going up to heaven and down to earth on the human one. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of this opportunity to come together to reflect on what it is that you would say to us on this day. We ask that you would, I ask that you would clear away those things that clutter our hearts and our minds that keep us um, from being fully present in this moment so that we might um, be open to what it is that you have to say to us, the things that you want to do within us. Speak through me because of me and maybe also a little bit in spite of me. That, um, that your voice would be heard and that we might be invited more deeply into discipleship, um, that we might be transformed for your purposes, and that we might be empowered to go out into the world and be your people wherever it is that you lead. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, I heard a term, millennial subsidy. Has anyone heard this term before? Wow, no one. Okay. Uh, well, basically, the millennial subsidy refers to all these incentives that were available throughout the early aughts to get millennials to sign up for different 
apps so that you know, different apps could rapidly increase their user base. Whether it's the first month free in your subscription or $10 off your next ride, um, uh, if your friend uses your link, as long as you had a fresh email address to offer, you could live an avocado toast lifestyle on a peanut butter and jelly budget. The effectiveness of the referral link, of course, is trust. When a friend recommends something, you're more likely to give it a try. Well, in a way, it was through the trust of referral that Jesus got his first disciples. When John points out, look, the Lamb of God, two of John's disciples, Andrew and some other guy, go to check him out. And just like that, John's referral gets Jesus his first two followers. We'll call it the pre-millennial subsidy. When he sees Andrew and the other guy, a funny sort of exchange happens. Jesus asks them, what are you looking for? And uh, instead of answering, they ask him a question. Where are you staying? They want to know who Jesus is. This is less about an address than it is about what he's teaching and what, where he's planning to take them in their road to spiritual understanding. But all he says is, come and see. It's a little dissatisfying, but they trust John. Because they trust John, at least for now, they'll trust Jesus. So on they go, but not before Andrew runs to get his brother Simon, later known as Peter. We found the Messiah. Simon joins them, of course, because he trusts Andrew. The next day, they come across Philip, and this time it's Jesus who extends the invitation. Follow me. And before we have time to wonder why, you know, Philip would, uh, would just accept, the author is careful to note that he's from the same hometown as Andrew and Peter. So maybe it's because Philip trusts them that he's willing to link up. And it all feels pretty seamless until Philip goes to get his friend Nathaniel, right? We found the one, he says. But Nathaniel's got some questions, namely, can anything good happen and come from Nazareth? Which even now, 2,000 years later, feels a little rough, right? But Philip just says, come and see. And so Nathaniel follows. Not because he trusts Jesus. He definitely doesn't trust Jesus. He, he trusts Philip. I've been thinking about trust a lot over the last couple of years. What builds it, what breaks it, what keeps it going. For at least the last 50 years, it seems like we've been living in a time when we are losing trust faster than we can build it. From military to monetary, politics to parishes, nearly every institution that has played a role in building the structures of our daily lives has been shown to come up short on honesty and accountability. I recently came across a report that was published by the Brookings Institute, an organization that conducts surveys to help inform public policy. And while they were particularly focused on the level of confidence people had in technology, what they found between the time when they first ran the survey in 2018 and then again in 2021 was that people had lost confidence in every major institution that makes up society. In other words, there are fewer and fewer places that folks feel like they can turn to and trust. Now pair this with the Surgeon General's declaration of a loneliness epidemic in the United States, and we're not only suffering a shortage in trust, we're also experiencing crushing levels of isolation. We long for connection and trust, but well, we're skeptical of all the ways that you can get it. Our social fabric has been shredded, not only by political division and social unrest, but also cynical worldviews that lead us to being suspicious of one another. And so how do we find our way back to each other? While Jesus' ministry started with trust and connection, it didn't stop there. 
Because even in the best of circumstances, while trust and connection might get someone through the door, it's not what transforms a person. It's not what leads to that sense of connection. What transforms a person is experience. Every time Jesus encounters a disciple, he doesn't offer a lengthy explanation or detailed agenda of what they'll be up to if they follow him. All he ever says is, come and see, or follow me. He doesn't demand that they sign a statement of faith, agree to a set of rules, or even acknowledge who he is in order to belong. Just come and see, follow me. That's it. And while Jesus does go on to be a demanding teacher, the gospel that Jesus embodies never fails to be generous. Whether it's a divorcee at a well, a Roman centurion with a sick daughter, or a wealthy woman pouring out expensive perfume, Jesus shows us that before you belong, before you, before, that you can belong before you believe. Jesus shows us that you can belong before you believe. And you can be loved before you behave. Even in our passage today, when Jesus knew that Nathaniel had dissed his hometown, right? Jesus didn't hold, him against, hold it against him. Instead of calling out, as Nathaniel is walking to him, before Nathaniel has anything to say, can say anything, Jesus says, here is a genuine Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Before Nathaniel can put up a wall, Jesus says, come on in, this guy, he tells the truth. He tells, what, tells it like it is, like he sees it. A generous gospel begins with belonging. It begins with belonging. Before someone has the chance to opt out. Come on, come on, come on. Get in here. It begins with belonging, and it assumes that every person who walks through the door has something to offer that helps to make us more whole. How different would the world be if we were unwilling to let people disqualify so easily? If we kept calling each other in, even if we didn't really want to. Several years ago, I heard about a study um, that a kindergarten teacher named Vivian Paley did. She conducted this kind of exper experiment in her classroom. One day it occurred to her how often she heard children in her classroom tell each other no, kindergartners. No, there's no room for you here to play with us. No, I promised I would play the next 16 games with someone else. No, we're already playing, you can't join. No, you can't play with us. And it was the same children always she noticed who were made into the outcasts. By kindergarten, she says, this sort of like ruling class starts to form among children. Certain kids notify others of their acceptability, and certain kids are told that they are unacceptable. And she wonders, why is there no rule about this? Right? There's rules about no hitting and no name-calling, but for some reason there's no rule about this exclusion. So one day she tells her class that there is a new rule, and she writes it on the, the chalkboard. It says, you can't say, you can't play. You can't say, you can't play. The children are astonished. They are in disbelief. How could this work? They're all convinced, everyone, even the kids who are most often rejected, none of them believe that this cool rule could work. It's impossible. 
By kindergarten, everyone had given in to their status and assumed that it was fixed. These are five-year-olds. That there was no way that this could be changed. So here's Vivian、um, reading from a transcribed discussion, discussion that she had with her class after introducing this rule: you can't say, you can't play. Right. This is one of the first、um, formal discussions we have on the、um, issue of you can't say, you can't play. And and this Angelo, who was about to speak, is certainly one of those who.、Um, Is not only feels himself, but is often rejected.、Um, Angela, let anybody play if somebody if someone asks. Lisa, but then what's the whole point of playing? Nelson, you just want Cynthia. Lisa, I could play alone. Why can't Clara play alone? Clara is one of the other children who、uh, who is often rejected. Often rejected and goes and sits in her in her cubby. Right, Angelo, I think that's pretty sad. People that is alone, they has water in their eyes. Lisa, I'm more sad if someone comes that I don't want to play with. Teacher, who is sadder, the one who isn't allowed to play, or the one who has to play with someone he or she doesn't want to play with? Clara, it's more sadder if you can't play. Lisa, the other one's the same sadder. Angelo, it has to be Clara because she puts herself away in her cubby, and Lisa can still play every time. Lisa, I can't play every time if I'm sad. One of the children you talk about a lot in the book is this girl、uh, who you call Lisa, and、um, when you put the rule into effect the first day, Lisa, you say she said she pouts. It's not fair at all. I thought we were only just talking about it. Right. I just want my own friends. What if someone isn't nice and hits me? And then the discussion. You say, well, you know, we have a rule about hitting, and then Lisa's not impressed with with this, and she says, <laughs> there's some people I don't like. And then there's this really amazing moment where Angela says, you, you write here, Angela says with that emotion, you don't like me. And everyone looks at him as if acknowledging the sad truth of his statement. Yes. The thing that strikes me about this discussion is just how readily everyone sort of accepts their role or their status. Angelo, Clara, the children who were rejected, they accepted their rejection. The children who had more status, like Lisa, right? Somehow she seemed to feel that. She was losing something by having to play with someone, with anyone, just anyone, an uncurated group of people. And yet, Vivian reported that after about a week of this rule going into effect, the classroom had completely transformed. She described how once she put the rule into effect, there was this kind of palpable sense of relief in the class, as if they'd been rescued from meanness. The children were grateful. For a structure that let them feel good about themselves and each other. Even even the girl that she describes as the most reluctant, right, Lisa. Later on, Vivian talks about how years later she would see Lisa in the hallways at school, and Lisa would always ask, "How's the rule going?" I'm trying to follow it, and she would give her an example of, you know, this week this is what I tried to do. Even though it was sometimes hard. Whether we are Angelo, Clara, or Lisa, we are quick to assume our status as better or less than. Sometimes we don't even think about it. 
I won't call it fashionable, but there's a certain kind of badge of honor I've noticed um, these days associated with a certain kind of rejection, right? Like punk was probably one of the earlier versions of that, or maybe the beat poets, I'm not sure, you know. But, but there, a kind of, there's, there's a sort of comfort or honor in, in the persecution that we feel, the rejection that we feel. And it's, in one way, it's a tactic to turn our pain into power, right? But in other ways, it maintains our alienation. And so I think of how this exchange between Nathaniel and Jesus maybe could have gone differently, right? Perhaps Jesus would have gotten offended and said, well, you know, I don't need you anyway. And gone on to tweet about, you know, the elitist that had, he had just encountered. Meanwhile, Nathaniel would be thinking that Jesus was proving his point. Like, look at this guy, right? Instead, though, Jesus calls Nathaniel in. Here is a genuine Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Calling people in is about more than not saying you can't, not saying you can't play, right? It's about even more than being nice. When Jesus calls Nathaniel in, he's practicing a generous gospel. He's naming a gift that maybe others wouldn't see as a gift and assuming that Nathaniel belongs. Come on, bring that gift over here. We need someone who can tell it like it is. Practicing a generous gospel means that we start from a place of assumed belonging. We assume that each person has gifts we need and insights to share that help us understand and experience God's presence more fully. And so this is why we engage in the practice of testimony. There was a little bit of resistance at the beginning, but I think folks are warming up to it. It's a way for us to call each other in, to affirm each other's stories, to expand our understanding of who God is through one another. This is why we have community meals and worship roundtables, because each of us has something to bring. This is why our classes and our small groups are designed to pull out the wisdom of the group rather than centering one expert voice. Each of us has wisdom to share. It's an invitational, open-hearted way of being in relationship with those around us, something that our world needs now more than ever. It's what I need. Maybe you need it too. You know, here at City Church, we have these beliefs to be Jesus-centered, grace-saturated, kingdom-oriented, biblically grounded, ever-reforming, intellectually honest, and communally designed. These are good beliefs. These are beliefs that root us in our Christian identity. They help us stay grounded in the bedrock of our faith. But beliefs don't mean much if they aren't put into practice, if they don't shape our lives or our community in any meaningful way. And so today, and over the next several weeks throughout the season of Lent, we're taking time to explore practices that help us really embody our beliefs more deeply for this particular moment in time, to help us experience God's love, to help us flourish spiritually from the inside out. We are living in times that far too often seek to shrink our imaginations. And so in order to maintain our faith, we have to practice it. We have to keep it strong. You have to try it out. And because we're a community that's Jesus-centered, we begin the way that Jesus did, with invitation. Come and see. And so this week, I invite you to invite someone else.
either someone who's part of this community, I'll make it easy, right? You can invite someone who's part of this community, or you can take a risk and invite someone who's outside of this community. Invite them to join you. It could be to an upcoming community group or affinity group. It could be to go for a walk and share some thoughts and dreams and ideas of things that are kind of weighing on you. Or to share a meal after worship. It could be uh, to uh, have, be a volunteer buddy at, our city, at city Hope um, on the 26th for our last Monday of the month. Um, and, or it could be even to join us for our service Sunday, which will be on March 3rd when this space isn't available. We're going to kind of go out into the city and engage in service activities. Who can you invite, right? There are lots of ways to invite people in. So take a look at maybe some of the offerings out there or on our website um, on the Connect Card uh, QR code and see how you, not only how you might be involved, wanting to get involved in something, but how you might invite someone to join you. Because life is better when we get to do it together. Bit by bit, invitation by invitation. Let's practice a more generous gospel. Let's do more than not say you can't play, right? Let's invite each other in. Let's give each other an opportunity to disrupt the loneliness and the cynicism that pervades this present moment that we're in. Let's stop looking for ways that we don't belong or other people don't belong and invite ourselves, invite each other to join in shared life, shared meaning, and shared purpose. We're living in a, in a culture that is quick to draw lines to define who's in and who's out. And church should be the last place where that's happening. For Jesus, there is no line, just an invitation. Come and see, follow me. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you always say we can play. We thank you that your posture is always one of invitation we thank you that you see gifts in us that we have a hard time seeing in one another and that you are relentless in calling those gifts out so that we can be called in. Help us, God, to follow in the way of your son Jesus. Help us to see what you see in one another, in ourselves. And help us to be bold in inviting other people in, to help them taste the goodness of who you are however that feels right for who we are, right for the people that we're in relationship with. Let us be transformed by our willingness to invite people in. And in doing so, help us to be part of your transformative work in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.